Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Listen in so you can know and better understand what's happening here in California. Find out how you can help and get involved and get inspired to break your own ground. Today, we're talking about the California Environmental Quality Act, or CEQA for short. It's a landmark law passed 37 years ago that created a statewide policy of environmental protection and it impacts every type of construction in this state. CEQA determines where housing is built or not built and it affects how much you pay in rent and the asking price of a home you want to buy. Real estate developers mostly hate it, saying CEQA is costly and then it needs major reform. But CEQA's defenders say the law has given California cleaner air, less congestion, and kept it a desirable place to live. CEQA is definitely wonky and complicated, but it's important and relevant, and it affects everyone who wants to rent, buy, or build a place to live in California. This is the final segment of our four-part series called California's Crazy Housing Market. We're down in the basement at Graciano's Speakeasy in Old Sacramento. Join us and listen to our Groundbreakers panel as we talk tonight about CEQA. Do we leave it as is? Do we reform the bill a little or a lot, or do we scrap it all together? So welcome to California Groundbreakers. My name is Vanessa Richardson. I'm the director of the Civic Engagement Organization that just started up uh, about a year ago in Sacramento. And our goal is to hold events in very cool venues like this one at Graziano's in Old Sacramento on very relevant topics like the one we're discussing this evening with uh, basically groundbreaking panelists who are uh, moving and shaking things up in Sacramento, uh, the region, and statewide. This is the fourth in a series that we're doing uh, called California's Crazy Housing Market. We had the first event in late January. That was an overview of the real estate market and why it's so crazy. The second one was on affordable housing, what that is, what that means, is it achievable here in the state? The third one was on gentrification and what it means when neighborhoods are changed by demographics, um, economic changes, and the fourth one is today, it's on CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, how it stands today, should it be changed a little, a lot, uh, uh, scrapped. We're gonna discuss that. Uh, I wanted to say a few thanks to people uh, who helped put this event together. The owners of Graciano's, Ken and Maria Harris. Matt Kennedy from The Trade, who helped me get the chairs out. Uh, these are comfy chairs. Uh, of course, the panelists for coming here. I know you're probably like, what is this organization? Uh, I've never heard of you, but thank you for taking a chance. And of course, to you guys for uh, coming out and listening. And again, this is recorded for podcasts, so the other three events that we've had are on podcast already. You can listen to them as a quartet, and um, they're really, really interesting. I think this is a really great venue to have this uh, panel discussion here. Graciano's is in Old Sacramento. I found out from the owner or the landlord, uh, Maria, that this was the former home of one of our uh, governors, William Booth. So this is the Booth building. This used to be a bar slash grocery store in the back. It also used to be a brothel at one point. It was a speakeasy during Prohibition time with the back door uh, 
with the little gate and you needed a password to get in. And then I was also told that when they do the, I don't know the official term for the equipment, but when they're checking, you know, extraterrestrial or supernatural uh, movements, lights, action, this area is where they get the most activity. So just keep that in mind. But I was curious, uh, based on how this building is now and how it's structured, would it pass CEQA? Uh, uh, the <laughs> no, the panelists are saying no. So, But uh, it is a wonderful building, Old Sacramento School with a lot of history. So. So what interested me, why we put this panel together, the housing market is so crazy, obviously, but I think a part of what has been coming up with the panelists that we've had on the other three is the California Environmental Quality Act and what it does, what it doesn't do, how it affects things. So I thought it would just be worthwhile to have a panel specifically on this topic because it is boring but important, it's relevant, uh, worthwhile, and it seems like it's always changing, um, or the the talk about it is always changing and it's not going to let up, so that's why we're here. I don't introduce the panelists myself, I let them introduce themselves, but I always like to ask a probing question so we get to know a little bit more about you beyond the name and the title. So I'm gonna start with the gentleman to my left, and I'm gonna ask your name. Uh, where you work your title there, just briefly, because you're going to talk more about what you do. And then the personal question I'd like to ask for all the panelists on this crazy housing market is series is, what is a crazy housing market story that you have, either as a renter, a home buyer, in your professional role, something that you encountered which made you think, wow, this is this is a crazy housing market that we live in here in California. So that's what I want uh, uh, each of you to tell me as we go down the line. So Howard, let's start with you. Uh, my name is Howard Penn. I'm the executive director of the Planning and Conservation League. Uh, we are a 50-year-old uh, environmental statewide environmental organization, and we're uh, one of the original authors of CEQA. Um, I, I was not one of the original authors of CEQA back in the 70s, but uh, the organization has had a his history of working on CEQA and defending CEQA at the state level, the state legislation. And a crazy housing story. Um, I used to live in the Bay Area and had a number of, an, of staff members that um, had a problem finding housing. And uh, one of the staff members that I had that had been with me for a number of years um, lived in an apartment that was rent controlled. For those of you that know the Bay Area, they have a very um, aggressive rent control scenario, especially in San Francisco. And it was a one-bedroom apartment. It was approximately 600 to 700 square feet. Um, I, she worked with me for going on about eight or 10 years. I did not know she had six people living with her to be able to um, uh, live there um, and to afford it because the rent control was not as low as one would think. So um, nowadays, some of the rent control apartments in that area uh, proportionally are, are affordable. But back in those days, it was still expensive in rent control. So she had five other roommates in a one-bedroom apartment. So. So I'm Chris Norum with the North State Building Industry Association, and our organization has been around uh, almost 70 years. We're the uh, trade association for builders and developers in our area, and uh, our members pay us, and part of our their dues go to a state and a federal um, lobbying effort as well. So um, 
And in terms of a story, I would say I have a couple of stories. I used to live in the Bay Area as well and uh, was living in a small studio apartment that I rented. Um, and I came to find out I was basically living in someone's illegal unit that I did not realize when I started trying to get my own mail that they actually had to come through them because there was no record that I was actually living in what had been like a modified garage in the back of their place. And uh, fleeing the high housing market over there, came over to the Sacramento and uh, wanted to come over here. I grew up in the Valley. and. Um, ended up buying a house in, uh, in the bottom part of the recession with my wife, and um, it was a bank foreclosure, and we came in, and it had been trashed to some extent. It was still clean, everything, nothing dangerous, but, it, I mean, the appliances had been ripped out, and, you know, we had to repair some walls and uh, replace the carpeting and everything like that, so it was just sort of, we, were, we felt lucky to be having this at the price we were getting it, um, but uh, it was just, uh, that's another crazy story, so thank you for having me. Uh, good evening. My name is Tina Thomas, and um, I am the founder of Thomas Law Group, and we do um, mostly CEQA litigation and work administratively with CEQA. So I was kind of curious how many people in the group uh, are really familiar with CEQA. I thought so, Curtis. Um, and then how, hands. Many, how many people are completely, this is a new topic to them. Great. So I hope we can educate you a little bit. Um, it is, I think it's interesting, I don't think it's as boring as Vanessa said earlier, but I think it's, you know, I'm a sort of a CEQA geek, I guess, so I, I really enjoy it. So my housing story is, you know, I have three children between the ages of 26 and 32, and nobody, they all live in the Bay Area, none of them can afford a home. Um, in fact, my son, um, and this is maybe to scale to Howard's uh, example, lives in 148 square feet. Um, in San Francisco, but he does live by himself, so <laughs> that's the bonus there. So um, <laughs> that's spacious for him, and he loves it actually. So, anyway, that's my crazy housing story. Good evening, uh, I'm Tom Buford. I'm a senior planner with the City of Sacramento. Most of all of my work has to do with uh, the the California Environmental Quality Act. Uh, usually, private development projects. We work on some public works projects. Uh, I joined the city in 2005 uh, to work on the what I call the MIP-ITC, which is the most important project in the city, which at the time was the Greenbrier Project, um, the applicant represented by Tina, so I was soon to uh, become acquainted with her, and I've been working with her on projects ever since. Uh, we're going to hearing tomorrow night, this is 2017, 12 years later, to the Planning and Design Commission on the Greenbrier pro Project. Um, I don't think that's all because of CEQA, but uh, it, uh, we've had a number of uh, uh, challenges along the way. Uh, I guess the housing market in California, uh, we've, uh, I've owned and uh, bought and sold a number of residences in the state. Um, sometimes I made a lot of money when we sold, and sometimes I got stuck on a bad market and I lost a lot of money. I, I haven't gone back, but I, I think I broke even overall, uh, and I've stopped doing that. I, I found a place to live, and I stay there and, and hunker down, so I, I don't participate in the market anymore. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you all for coming. It's going to be a great discussion, and I want to start off with Tina as the CEQA geek. If you could give us a, a brief description, if you can, of what CEQA is, it, the history, because uh, it's 37 years old this year, signed by Ronald Reagan. And uh, I wanted to get your description, you know, the common, to the, the layman's terms of how it works, uh, you know, what it is, how it works, what it encompasses. 
All right, so that's a um, complicated question. Um, 38 years of CEQA has um, been very interesting. I've been at it about 38 years. So I've got a pretty good view of what it all looks like. And um, when CEQA was first passed, um, there was a question about whether it applied to just public works projects or to private developers. And that was the first case that was litigated at the California Supreme Court. And they decided that it applied to all, all projects for which there was a discretionary decision. So anytime there's any kind of judgment that is um, exercised by an agency, then CEQA kicks in. So that really, really grouped in a whole lot of projects that you know, a lot of people didn't think that it initially applied to. So that was back in 1970, um, one or two, two I think. Um, and um, at that point in time, uh, you know, there, the statute itself was probably, I don't know, maybe 10 pages. Now it's probably, how many pages, Curtis? It's probably two, 200 easily. And, um, you know, when I first started practicing, there were 10 or 12 CEQA, um, published CEQA cases, and now there's hundreds of them. In fact, I'd say they come out, you know, one a week. And what's very interesting to me is the activity at the California Supreme Court they have probably published more cases on um, CEQA in the past uh, three years than they did in the past couple decades. So we're getting some really interesting CEQA law out of the California Supreme Court, um, and there's actually two more cases going to the California, California Supreme Court for oral argument on CEQA next week. So again, it continues to change. So what does, it, what does a CEQA really mean? It's, it requires you to prepare some sort of environmental document if you have a discretionary project. And there's really three levels. Um, you can do an exemption if you um, are eligible for either a statutory or categorical exemption. And we may get into this a little bit more when we talk about the arena, because I think that's going to come up. Um, and then there's also what's called a negative declaration. If the project doesn't have any environmental effects, you can do a negative declaration. Or you can do a mitigated negative declaration if you add mitigation measures in to um, a particular project to get it to less than significant. But if a project has significant environmental impacts, you're compelled to do an environmental impact report that analyzes a number of things from alternatives to mitigation measures to um, cumulative impacts to growth-inducing impacts, and that's what an environmental impact report is. So that's the very simple analysis about what CEQA is, and I'm sure we're going to get into a lot more detail. And I had a question in particular about housing, since we've been focusing so much on that. Uh, I think I read that many CEQA lawsuits and disputes are around bigger projects, but in terms of CEQA and housing, um, are there any issues that typically arise, like the bigger the development or where it's built, uh, CEQA has more of an effect based on geography or size or not so much? Not so much. Um, CEQA applies, again, anytime you have a discretionary permit. So one of the Supreme Court cases that we dealt with a few years ago was in Berkeley and it was a single family dwelling that had a discretionary permit attached to it that was required to do an environmental impact report, so the full analysis of environmental impacts. So a single family dwelling can trigger a full environmental impact report. Um, and so it's, it's, there really is no um, rule with regard to size or geography. 
the question is always going to be, does that particular project have a uh, the potential for a significant environmental impact? And if it does, then you're in this uh, question of, can you do a neg deck, a mitigated ne negative deck, or are you required to do an EIR? And that's really what this is all about. And it doesn't matter about the size of the project. Okay, I, I'm going to get to you, Howard. You're after Chris. Um, but I do want to say the acronyms that I see very often when I, when I read about CEQA is obviously CEQA and EIR, the Environmental Impact Report. So those are the acronyms, I guess, that we may be uh, using a lot. So with Chris, the, that, the next question is for you because, again, like I mentioned for the other uh, discussions that we've done on this topic, CEQA comes up. And I remember one... Um, home developer uh, saying off off the mic that CEQA is often a four-letter word for real estate developers because before you put a shelf on the ground, there's tens of thousands of dollars of impact fees, and they have to pass that price along. So for your organization, the North Builders Industry Association, NBIA, um, I was wondering, you know, um, do you see CEQA as an obstacle uh, in general? I mean, that might be a loaded question, but what are the general issues that your members have with CEQA? What do you want to see changed, in a nutshell? <clears throat> well, let me, um, just because of the, the scope of the audience, let me just go back and kind of um, do a little bit of background. And on top of what Tina said, for those of you who don't know and haven't even seen what an EIR looks like, which, when she says that it, you find that there's going to be a project of significance or there's going to be a significant impact, it triggers an environmental impact report. What does that mean? Well, if I wish I was, I was looking around for one to bring with me. I couldn't, everything's online now, so they don't do them in hard copy anymore, but it's thousands of pages. It's a suite of consultants from air to land to water to greenhouse gases to all kinds of things that will analyze thousands of pages and you come out with a draft report get public input on that, and then come up with the final report. So that's what we're talking about. When we say doing a report, we're talking about a giant two-year-long study with a report that comes out um, that has lots of technical appendices and such for the decision makers to look at. And that's the other second point I wanted to get to real quick as background is that I think it's this area gets very confusing because there's really two processes that go along with approving a housing project. There's the legal CEQA process, which is you know, tell me all of the things that are going to be happening with the environment that I should be aware of as a decision maker, as a city council member or board of supervisors member, and I want to weigh those things and make a decision if this is the right thing for our community going forward. That's a legal CEQA process. There's also, um, so they, when, the, the, when we get to that point of approving a project, you actually have to approve the EIR and say, this, this, this EIR document is adequate. It's done its job. It's informed me. That's one question, that's the legal question. The second issue they address at that point is a political question. Is this the right project for the community based on just is it good for it or not? Do we want it? And so people oftentimes confuse those two processes. And I, mean, I brought that up for a reason because one of the problems that we kind of have with it is <clears throat> we are fine with doing environmental analysis. What we have a problem with is people using the legal environmental analysis to achieve a political end when you're saying, okay, we're just going to keep, we don't like the project, so we're just going to sue you under CEQA repetitively until we either drive you out of business or make it so that you, you know, change the project. And those are really political questions about what you want the future of the project to look like and not a legal tool that should be really being used to just analyze what 
is going to happen if we do this. And so I think that's the main issue for us is that it's, it's used and abused in some cases where people want a contract for a public works project. They want, um, you know, different, you know, school wants an expansion of their facility or neighbors just don't like it and they initiate or threaten to initiate litigation through CEQA as a means of achieving their political ends. So. Okay, so next question's for Howard. The Planning Conservation League, as you mentioned, has been there since the start of tr uh, getting CEQA up, tracking it, and following it, and you do that now. And I feel in some ways you are uh, one of the defenders of CEQA as it stands. And I wanted to ask, you know, does CEQA work just well as it does? Um, when you defend it, uh, you know, what do you say to people like that had the, that stance that, that Chris and others might have? And then are there changes that you may think would be good to it? If so, what, what are they? So the stance on CEQA that you have now. Okay. Um, first, I, I really appreciate what Chris just said, that uh, CEQA is often used in ways that was not the original intent of CEQA. Um, and you would have to address whether or not that particular uh, uh, lawsuit or that particular action was actually in the original uh, intent at that time. But l let me go back for a minute. CEQA, California Environmental Quality Act, we, I am actually a big proponent of calling it the Community and Environmental Quality Act because the original intent behind CEQA was actually to uh, highlight the impacts through the discretionary process. So that means through the city council, the board of supervisors, or whoever's making that uh, discretionary decision. And more importantly, to involve the community. Um, prior to CEQA, projects were being approved, and even though you may have the time to take out of your busy work schedule to go stand in front of a board of supervisors or a city council member uh, to oppose a project or support a project, that didn't happen very much. There wasn't a good avenue to hear the community's voice. So that was really the original intent, is that community members have and should have as much a part in the long-term planning of their community as do the uh, planners themselves. Uh, and I know that as a planner, Tom may have challenges with that sometimes, but um, ultimately we, we as a community help define what our environment is. So that being the original intent. What's happened over the years, as Tina highlighted, is that it started off as a fairly small bill and it has grown to a very large bill. And not only is the bill itself or the statute itself fairly large now, there's all this case law behind it, as she was mentioning, that uh, applicants have to take into account when they're submitting their applications. So the complexity of CEQA in the 21st century, given the, the convoluted approach that we go through with general plans and general plan updates and uh, RENA requirements, regional housing allocations and so forth, makes application of that or, or applying that law much more complicated. And so as some of the defendants or the guardians of CEQA, as we call ourselves at the state legislature, we are looking at ways that we can put this into the 21st century. Laws should not stay static and they should be something that we address as time unfolds and we better understand the pressure points uh, up against that statute. So specifically, uh, this last year, the governor proposed what was called by right. And he put out there on the table his desire to want to have by right development, meaning that if you are zoned a certain way and your project fits the zoning for what you currently have in the parcel that you want to develop on or parcels you want to develop on, that in that construct, you should be able to have that entitlement to build by right. Okay, 
the complexity of that, um, when you flush that out over multiple projects across the entire state in multiple communities with lots of different requirements and expectations, is extremely complicated. And what happened is that the governor kind of put that out there, and many organizations, both building as well as Enviro, as well as equity and housing advocates and so forth, said, whoa, 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 whoa. We really need to take a look at what the impacts of a by right statute in state law would mean across the entire state of California. Because it takes the voice of the community in those particular um, areas that those projects are applying out of the picture. It means you would not have the right to be able to go and say what you think is a good way for that project. So we got involved in this conversation. And so over the last six to eight months, what we've started to do in talking with construction companies, nonprofit as well as for-profit, equity, EJ community uh, organizations, housing organizations, is how can we look at specifics within the statute, within CEQA, that could help promote housing development across the state in the right way? Now, what do you mean by right? Everyone's gonna have a different perspective as to what the right way is. That's the conversation that we need to have before we just pass a unilateral by right law that says if you're zoned a certain way, you can build it. And that's the type of thing that we're looking at. There's lots of other technical things in CEQA. Um, there's a couple bills that are going through right now that are, that are looking at ways in which the uh, administrative filing, or the administrative record is done. We've supported a bill in the past by Jackson, uh, Jackson SB 122, that actually would do a statewide database so that all people across the state can look at the way in which um, CEQA applicants and project applications are being done. Um, that's something that many jurisdictions do not have electronic filing or databases to be able to track this. It's all paper-based, so as a community member, if you wanna know what applicants are doing, you might have to go get a whole stack of paper that, that uh, we were just talking about a minute ago. But if we could put that in an electronic format and make it easier to have access to that information, that to us is a transparency issue. It's about informing the community about the, the projects that are being proposed in people's backyard so that you know what is happening and you can lend your voice to the process. Great, and Tom, question for you as a planner for the city of Sacramento. I was curious in terms of on a, looking at it from a visual point of view, how CEQA has shaped the landscape here in the city of Sacramento. I don't know how long you've been at the department, but I was just curious at least for the, the um, current past, uh, has CEQA uh, shaped something that would be built smaller or taller in this place or not? Um, so in terms of a visual, if you can give us a visual where CEQA's really affected the, the skyline or the landscape. And then uh, I guess future, the future map of infill housing or expansion, where CEQA will affect or what you predict it will affect. The, um I, I've, I've worked in uh, a number of different counties in Southern California, Ventura, and in Santa Barbara County. Uh, I'm obviously in Sacramento, city of Sacramento. I've worked in Oroville, Butte County, Anderson. Uh, so I, I've, I've worked throughout the state, and one of the important features of the CEQA process is that it's a state statute, and there are state regulations but there's the concept of the lead agency, and the lead agency is the agency that's issuing the permit. So in the case of the city of Sacramento, if we're issuing a, a, a considering a conditional use permit and we're doing CEQA review, we are using the state statute and the state regulations, but we are the ones who 
look at the environmental setting. We're the ones who look at the project description. We're the ones who look at what is important to us uh, based on evidence about what is a significant effect, and we handle the mitigation. Uh, there, are, there is a public process, and there's the decision makers, the uh, Planning and Design Commission or the City Council, and eventually there's litigation, which has been alluded to. But it's the local agency that deals with this statute and applies the statute. So, uh, and my experience is, and, and probably the best examples are, I worked in the county of Santa Barbara and I worked in the county of Butte. Uh, the same project, pretty much the same circumstances, could in Butte County come through and maybe be exempt or maybe come through on a fairly minimal environmental review. And as Tina says, in Santa Barbara County maybe, we do an EIR, and they've done an EIR in a single-family residence in Santa Barbara as well. So uh, it's a very localized agency, and some of the other comments about what's going on in CEQA at the state level are efforts by the state legislature and some of the interests to try to get into that process so that there's some control over that and maybe some moderation. I think that the idea about a statewide database so that you could say, well, here's this project in Pasadena, and here's a project in Reading. Why did they get treated so differently? And there is definitely that possibility. Uh, in the city of Sacramento, and I won't count, I have no comments about the county of Sacramento. We, we don't, uh, I, I don't have anything to do with them, and, and I, I don't watch uh, what they do, and I'm not involved in their projects most of the time. My responsibilities are over projects in the city. And the, in the process of the city, uh, we do a pre-application, a lot of times uh, six months or a year in advance of an application coming in. We can talk about the design of the project and how that project could be changed to uh, better fit within CEQA and avoid impacts. Most of the time, my experience is, those projects come in, somebody wants to do something, they have a piece of property, and it's our job to get them through the CEQA process. There isn't a lot of flexibility on their part. Once in a while, we'll have some design features. Most of the time, we're going with that project and we're deciding how we're going to process that. And the, uh, the, I, th I think in terms of, does it affect the design of the community or the design of projects? Uh, CEQA has the historical resources component. So the Hotel Marshall, came in, somebody wants to take down a portion of the Hotel Marshall and build a new structure. Because that affects a historic resource, we had a lot of talk about design. So in that case, we did do, the CEQA was involved in the project design. We've had other projects where there were federal permits or the, or the like. Most of the time, that's not the case because most of our impacts in the city are transportation. They've been traffic, traffic, traffic and traffic. Tina knows a project where we had noise and we had uh, toxic air contaminants and we had uh, uh, probably three, or landfill gas, but what got the community excited? Traffic. And I've seen that throughout my career that uh, that seems to be the issue that pulls everybody together. So somebody comes in with a project, I want to go in here, this is what I want to do. There's no way for them to design that project 
to avoid traffic impacts, except by downsizing or doing some other feature that probably destroys the project. So there's some times that we do get involved and it, there has had an effect. Most of, of what I see of the CEQA is a process that comes in once somebody wants to do something and it's a test of wills in terms of getting through the community and the political process. And comments about political, this stuff is political. Every project has a political component and, and CEQA certainly is affected by the political environment. And that's another acronym that's often come up in the, in the panel discussions, uh, NIMBYs, not in my backyard, that seems to be one that comes up a lot. So um, I'm gonna open up the questions I have to all panelists now. Um, I, taking a step from local to statewide or national, I was curious how our Environmental Quality Act compares or contrasts to what other states have, if you, if you know. I think I read somewhere that Oregon may have something similar, maybe even a little more strict, but I was just curious in terms of, since CEQA was enacted, is it, is it very strict compared to what other states have? Are we on par? Uh, does anyone have any, uh, Howard? Yeah, the, so the, the history is that a number of states across the country um, looked at CEQA when it was passed and uh, enacted statutes that were similar. Um, I can't say any of them have the breadth that CEQA has. Uh, many people would translate breadth to uh, uh, strictness or, or restriction, but actually what it is is that CEQA requires an analysis across multiple different types of elements as opposed to other states that might only we ask you to do traffic and water, but they don't ask you to do noise and they don't ask you to do other things. So it depends on the state. Um, there is a NEPA requirement, that's the National Environmental Protection Act. Uh, that act is applies to public lands and to federal projects. Uh, that one's not quite as, as robust as CEQA is. And in the state of California, there's actually potential legislation up right now that in some of the public projects, uh, NEPA and CEQA would be combined, so the lead agency in the state would actually also be filing and in charge of the NEPA. And there's pros and cons to that. That's a that's an expeditious or a way to expedite application processes processes when you have an EIR for a CEQA requirement and an EIS environmental impact study for a NEPA requirement. So. Okay, and then. Um, when I was looking at stories in the news about CEQA in the past couple of years, you know, there's always the, the notable ones where, um, you know, the bike lanes did not get uh, uh, created in Berkeley because one person uh, filed a lawsuit uh, that, about a CEQA-related lawsuit. I'm just curious in terms of, you know, with the public involvement, um, how, what's the process of filing a, a lawsuit that blocks something using CEQA as the purpose? How does it work if there is a process? Be, before Tina jumps in on this, because she knows lawsuits. Okay. Um, from, from our standpoint at the local agency level, when the, when the applicant is talking to us, uh, one of the questions that we ask during the, the process of, of talking about the project and its impacts is, is it controversial? Do you have people out there, neighborhood organizations, labor unions, uh, other commercial interests, other landowners, um, local property owners, uh, individuals that are particularly interested in this that you think might challenge our document. It's not that that runs our document process. It's not that that means that, that 
we decide based on that alone. But for the applicant or the, the agency undertaking the project, it's relevant to know what kind of challenge you're going to face or you could face at the end. And sometimes we've had uh, attorneys for applicants uh, tell us when they came in that we're going to do an EIR on this project because we have reasons for legal sufficiency and the like. So it's, a, it's, it's not controversy by itself doesn't mean that you have a significant effect. But as a practical matter in the CEQA process, we ask, we want to know, and the savvy applicant or their savvy attorney uh, take that into account as we move through the process of how we're going to prepare documentation for that project. Tina. So the threshold for challenging a project is um, exceptionally low if you do a negative declaration or a mitigated negative declaration. And I don't want to get into the weeds on you know, what the courts do, but we know that when courts look at a neg deck or a mitigated neg deck, um, and there is evidence in the record of a potential for environmental impact that's been presented by project opponents that because of the standard of review, the courts are obligated to shift and look at the evidence that is presented by the project opponents. That differs from when you're doing an, an EIR and the courts are obligated to look at the evidence presented by the city or the county, or the, the agency. So because this threshold is so deferential to project opponents when you do a neg deck or a mitigated neg deck, most people are going to tip in favor of doing an EIR if there's any level of controversy. Because if you get to the end of this one or two or three year process, and you've done a negative deck or a mitigated negative deck, and there is opposition and litigation, then you're going to lose because the courts are going to find in favor, generally, of in favor of the plaintiffs. And so, what is it? You know, how does this all work? They exhaust their plaintiffs can exhaust their administrative remedies before the agency, um, make their case. Um, there's a decision. The city files what's called a notice of determination on an environmental impact report. Um, or, or an egg deck, and um, that triggers the period during which they can file an environmental challenge to the project. Filing fees, probably a couple hundred bucks, and you're in the game. You can hold that project up through the Court of Appeal for probably a couple of years because most banks aren't going to loan on a project for which there is litigation pending. Um, very few banks will take that risk. So um, just by way of example, how many people have followed the McKinley Village project? Okay. So that project, you know, there was, ex uh, you know, opposition, litigation filed. We've been in litigation on that project for a number of years. Um, but the bank agreed to loan on that one. Very unusual, but they did. And so at this point, there's probably roughly well, there's um, probably 36 homes built, another 55 under construction, some point of construction, and um, you know we're still in this litigation. So it's it's really kind of an interesting process. It hasn't stopped the project at this point. 
and it won't, but um, it is sort of interesting what litigation can do because it drives up your costs of your loan, it, dri it drives up a number of things. So it has a very negative effect on, in the end, the housing price that is for which that product is sold to individuals. Howard? I'm gonna add something to that and go back to something that Tina said earlier. There's no, there's no requirement in the statute that it's by size, meaning the size of the project. If it, if it requires an EIR, then it requires an EIR regardless of the size. However, politically, obviously, the larger the projects are, the more people that, that are involved in the decision process and that are affected by the impacts of that project. And so the more um, involvement uh, people, more people get involved in that when it's a larger project. Uh, you know, a good example is some of the large subdivision projects that are going on in the outskirts of, of the city of Sacramento. And, you know, different communities have different perspectives as to whether or not those are good or bad. And, and that process by which community individuals are involved in that decision, in that discretionary um, decision process, I think is very healthy. Um, it, it does sometimes amount to lawsuits to be able to have your voice heard or to uh, affect change in an EIR that you don't agree with, you and your, your uh, neighbors and so forth. But statistically speaking, and there's a lot of variation of this, you've seen this in the news if you've watched these things, you know, th there's a number of proponents that are out there saying that CEQA is uh, a, a terrible law that has lawsuits up and down the state of California and it's inhibiting all of this growth of housing that we need because of the housing crisis that we have. And when you really dig into it and look at it, we were having this conversation earlier before the session started, it's really hard to track all the success stories of CEQA. If a CEQA process is successful and if a project applicant is successful, it doesn't show up on the legal case docket, right? And so you can't go look it up unless you go to every single planning department, every single lead agency across the state of California with hundreds of jurisdictions and hundreds of departments that deal with this, you can't go easily look this up and see how many success stories there are in the process of community involvement and people actually proactively being part of the decision process. What you see is the negative. So what we see is, we see the cases that are going in front of courts because that gets documented, and then we pull those cases out and we say, see all these CEQA cases that are holding up the process. Um, I would submit that uh, the percentage, and there's been some anecdotal analysis of this in certain jurisdictions. They couldn't do the whole state because that would take too much time and money. But in certain jurisdictions, Southern California and the Bay Area and so forth, pulling all of the different project applicants, project applications and CEQA uh, lawsuits out, it's a very, very small percentage of the EIR uh, applications that are submitted with CEQA documents. Uh, and typically, not always, but typically most of those lawsuits that are filed are fairly large projects. They're not the example where you have one house that has a conditional use permit and that conditional use per permit executes a discretionary action. Those are not typically the lawsuits that you see. Why? Because lawsuits are very expensive. And although CEQA actually encourages the community to be involved, it costs money to hire CEQA attorneys. And those costs are borne by the community or the community members or the organization that's filing the lawsuit until you win. And if you, if you win, you can apply for those fees uh, and reimbursement, but you don't always get them back. So raising 50 to 100 to $200,000, sometimes half a million dollars for legal fees to sue an EIR 
is not a negligible issue for community groups to have to do. So a lot of times community groups are discouraged in doing this because it just costs a lot of money and it takes a lot of time. So we get a lot of requests from community organizations across the state to help them with this. We don't get involved as an organization in specific local lawsuits on CEQA. We have done some larger project issues on, on legal suits with CEQA on big things, uh, but small local issues, we encourage the local communities to get involved. But it's very complicated. So the percentage of lawsuits out there that are holding up projects compared to the number of projects that are going through is very small. Chris. Oh, sorry. So I just wanted to respond to that because I think that you, know, you can look at this from a number of different vantage points. And I think that probably what he's saying, if you took it literally, is, is true. That there are a small number of lawsuits affecting it if you look at how many actual, are actually filed. Uh, but I think that our industry would submit that there are a lot of lawsuits that are just threatened where it, it you know, actions are finally taken behind the scenes before we even get to the point of them actually you know, going to battle and filing a lawsuit and, and duking it out at the cost of hundreds of thousands of, or millions of dollars. So there's, it has an effect that is uh, in some ways difficult to get at. And I guess we have our dueling studies that, I mean, our Holland and Knight study says that 80% of all the, you know, uh, litigation is on infill projects and tra public transportation projects and things where you have a lot of neighbors who aren't very happy with something that's going in right across the street from them. So I know that he probably would look at it in a different light, but I think that's our industry's point of view is that there's, a, there's not a lot of uh, abuse in that realm. It's not just the big projects that are getting sued. And I would also say that you know a lot of times it is neighbors who are um, threatening to sue, and you don't have to have a tremendous amount of money for a developer and a builder. The, just the mere prospect of litigation that might entangle them for a couple of years is enough to make them change the project or do something different. Or um, so, you, and you don't have to have necessarily you know someone with two hundred thousand dollars in their bank and an attorney ready to go in order to exercise the, the teeth from CEQA and to affect projects. And kind of going back to what he was saying, it was interesting as you were saying how there's all this people in the queue to try to get analyzed, because I deal with that at Sac County and the city all the time, is that we're trying to get things moved through the process and they only have so much staff that can do that. So if you have a, <clears throat> a process where you know, you're exposed to litigation and you're worried about getting that through, eventually you know, there's lots of builders who are in the queue, basically, waiting for staff time to analyze their projects, to, to have um, it looked at and approved by that jurisdiction. So that ends up creating lots of builders and builders holding onto parcels for long periods of time, and that ends up ultimately being uh, reflected in the house prices, that they're holding onto them, waiting for them to get through the process. And so, sort of um, tangentially, CEQA does have that effect. It, it bogs down the process or slows down the process, or CEQA would, would probably say it ensures a thorough analysis of the process before it uh, gets into the uh, part of where it's actually built and put out for consumer use. And I, I had a quick question about that, because I was curious, I was curious whether um, home developers, builders, uh, make a decision whether to build or not to build based on the track record, I guess, of uh, CEQA uh, lawsuits or blockage, or we're like, oh, we're not going to get it done because there's just, I don't know, too many people, they have a uh, history of, you know, filing lawsuits, or that's not an issue. I was just curious whether, you know, you pick or choose um, based on that. Or Tina, either one. Let me just start and say that absolutely geography has a lot to do with whether or not a developer is gonna build in a particular community. And there are communities that are just so difficult that if you don't have the staying power, you're just not gonna go into that jurisdiction. It just, that's just the way it is. 
And um, Chris, why don't you go ahead and say what you had to say? And then I did want to follow up a little bit on the issue of the number of lawsuits um, because it isn't it isn't small. Yeah, I would just second what Tina is saying. I think that you know a lot of times a developer will go and have a site survey done on, and look at their property first and decide whether or not they're gonna you know whether whether they're gonna take a look at it and uh, that will affect whether or not they're gonna be able to proceed on something. So, all right, Tina. As I said at the very beginning, CEQA really applies to every discretionary decision. So if you think about it, pretty much everything that the city and county does is almost always discretionary. Putting a pipeline here, um, building a utility shed, I mean, all those things are discretionary. And there's some level of environmental review that's conducted on them. So if you add all of those up and then compare the number of lawsuits, yeah, it's gonna look like it's you know, hardly anything is litigated. But if you look at, you know, the number of sort of really big, meaty projects that make a difference to a community, then you are going to see that there are a lot of, uh, there's just an awful lot of litigation related to CEQA that unfortunately is blocking a lot of, a lot of housing. I mean, my, my practice is built on the fact that CEQA is so hard. That's, that's my business model. And that's kind of a sad statement, I think. I, I mean, I shouldn't be making money on the fact that CEQA is just so damn hard. And that's, that's really what it's all about. So I want to get you guys, the audience involved, in asking questions. I, I have a whole bunch. I have plenty. But I, I feel like you have similar ones or probably new ones. So if you want to start lining up at the mic, we've got a half an hour, a little more, um, for questions. So. Don't be, don't be shy. There's always a groundbreaker who opens the floodgates. And if you do ask a question, I will buy you a drink. So, okay. There we go. Uh, we have our first question. Of, all right, yeah. But Hi, my name's Jill McGee, and I live in Oak Park. And I've attended these talks, and they've been fantastic. I really appreciate that we've been able to have these kinds of conversations and bring people who can actually maybe answer our questions. In the news recently, we had a big deal with some housing that's being built in Curtis Park. And there was a sort of the political arm of this conversation where the residents essentially between Curtis Park and Oak Park were really pitted against each other over the fact that someone who was building wanted to have a Safeway. And apparently the Safeway was part of the project, but then later decided that the Safeway wouldn't be allowed, wouldn't come unless they could build 16 pump gas station. And this became a sort of swirling issue between Curtis Park, the people who were against the gas station, the people who realized that there was federal funds associated with making that spot in Curtis Park transit friendly, plus just extra traffic, like you mentioned, that traffic could be a problem. And those of us in Oak Park and Curtis Park went to the city council meetings and listened to them talk about traffic studies in particular. But if you drive down the street, Crocker Drive, those, those plots are empty. There are no houses there. So how could you really even have done a traffic study when there's no houses built yet and there is no traffic yet? And it would have been the only discount Safeway gas between Davis and Natomas. So the, the traffic issue, I think, in that particular case was interesting to me. But it sounded like the project was passed and allowed 
And then I assume there was some CEQA involved. And then later, oh no, we have to put in this gas station and now we have everyone hostage over this gas station. Is it the case with CEQA that developers present the sort of sunny, rosy, it's not gonna impact anything? And then we actually look at the impact and say, hey, no, there's lots more impact there? Or is there a tendency to sort of overestimate what the impact could potentially be foreseeing potential issues and then it being approved once it's been reviewed and said, well, yes, we've said these issues and yes, we've reviewed them and now we were able to make, like, is it a, oh, we th think it's okay and everyone should want a gas station because everyone's, everyone wants gas, but then all of the residents don't want the traffic, don't want the pollution, don't want the gas tanks in the ground potentially creating other issues. Tom. Yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll elucidate. Um, that's ongoing. There's ongoing litigation regarding Crocker Village. So I, I don't want to, and I work for the city, and I have absolutely no intention of, of becoming a witness in that uh, affair. So, uh, but maybe uh, frame uh, a question out of, out of that observation and question that I could answer. Um, and, and that would be um, the, uh, uh, want the developers, kind of from the, from the developer's perspective, uh, and selling a project, getting support for a project, both politically and in the community. And it's interesting in Curtis Park and Oak Park, that I think they, the exchange between Curtis Park and Oak Park was, was created not by the city or by any other part of the process. It was created by, I, I believe it's fair to say, the, the, the applicant, and that was his view, and so be it. But the uh, process of bringing that project forward I know that the applicant not only spent tens of millions of dollars cleaning up the site, but spent enormous amounts of time, I know, with the community in community meetings. And it's, it's tragic that, that out of all of that, uh, you have this lasting uh, or ongoing enmity between the parties that, that they were unable to resolve. Um, I think that the, the issues that were presented by the, the gas station, um, were partially so-called CEQA-related. We have a concept, well, there are other agencies involved, in this case the Air District, that would have permitted that. And there was a health risk assessment, and there was we had traffic studies. But when it came down to it, I think that was a case of uh, the, the, the ongoing, the real decision-making, and this was alluded to earlier, the other processes that are going, was the planning process, was the general plan process, was the um, Sacramento Area uh, Council of Governments, uh, uh, MTP, uh, was the Metropolitan Transportation Plan, and the Sustainable Communities uh, strategies, other planning processes that say we want communities to build in a certain way. And I think that the underlying uh, issue in that case and in a lot of others ends up being a planning issue and not an environmental issue. The, the environmental issue was pointed to in terms of cancer risk, in terms of air quality, in terms of traffic uh, to the extent that that's really an environmental issue. And that was relevant. But I think when it came down to the decision by the council and, and the way this has gone forward, they ended up really fighting it out over people's objections to building a 
so-called transit-oriented development with an overpass to light rail and an overpass to parks and an overpass to, to the college and then putting in a gas station. It kind of offended people's planning sensibilities and I think that that's where that decision came from. So from the CEQA side, our involvement was uh, preparing the health risk assessment, preparing the environmental document, um, doing the traffic study or whatever they did and writing up a document and then we moved to the back of the hall and kept our heads low because no matter what we said and whatever the determination was, there were a whole bunch of other issues that were going to play out. And, and that's probably a good example of what happens in a lot of communities. Howard. So I'm going to add to that. Um, it, with hundreds of jurisdictions across the state of California, cities and counties and so forth, there's good actors and there's bad actors. And um, depending on your local jurisdiction and where you live and who's running it, basically the elected officials and the top-down management of that and the planning staff that are in these different uh, departments across the state depend on how that is dealt with. I've seen personally scenarios of planning departments being exceptionally good with managing the applicant's process uh, through all the way to completion, and I've seen other agencies or planning departments that are terrible at it. And um, applicants take advantage of that. Um, they're not necessarily 100% transparent, and communities often end up paying the brunt of that burden because the planning department and or the local elected officials didn't manage that through the process well. So you get everything under the sun in the state of California. Um, being the sixth largest economy in the world, uh, it is a country trying to figure out how we're going to grow. And something I was going to say earlier, and I'll take just a second to say this now, philosophically the conversation we're having now as a state, as a community, as a society regarding housing, both from the low, low affordable housing all the way up to market rate housing, and lots of advocates and special interest groups involved in this conversation over the last year plus now. And this has been going on for a long time, but especially politically the last year at the state level, I think is a really healthy conversation. It's about time we have this conversation. All of us agree there's a housing crisis. This is the series of talks that Vanessa has put on here, which I think is wonderful. I think this conversation needs to happen at the community level every single month so that members of communities can understand the dynamics of how challenging it is for builders to get projects done, good projects done, and what it means as a community to be involved in that process. Don't parachute in at the last moment is what I always tell communities. When I travel the state and I give talks about how to be involved in the CEQA process, and Tina will appreciate this as a lawyer, what you want to do as a community is get involved early, talk to the applicant earlier, go to your planning department, talk to wonderful planners like Tom here, and, and start it early. The last thing you want to do is parachute in at the last minute and threaten a lawsuit to try to leverage what your special little pet project is. Work with your community organizers, work with your stakeholders in the area, and do that early, because that's a successful community planning process. And if we all did that across all of our jurisdictions across the state of California, we really could move the needle forward on building more housing. You're going to have some outliers that are always going to disagree and they're never going to want to build a thing. But if the majority of the community says, you know what, we need more moderate priced housing and we need more affordable housing, and yes, we do need more market rate housing, but let's focus on the stuff that's not being built fast enough, which is affordable and moderate rate housing, 
Those are the types of things that community members can be really, really instrumental in helping happen. And elect the right people that are going to make that happen, okay? Because you've got to give them cover. The elected officials are hung out the dry. They're put in the office, running for in a community that says, we don't want any building, and what they say, we don't want any building, right? And then they're put in the office, and you have all these applicants coming through, and they're watching you sit in the audience at their supervisor meetings or their city council meetings, and they're going, oh, I can't vote for this, right? I can't approve this project because I ran on the campaign of not building anything. Well, guess what? We need to start electing officials that are willing to make hard choices, and we need to support them when they make those choices, or otherwise we're not going to get any housing built, and we're not going to get the right projects built, right? So... That's my little soapbox thing. I never thought I'd say this, but I completely agree. <laughs> can, Tina. can I say something for just a second? I just wanted to go back to your, your initial question about do developers just paint a rosy picture in their environmental document? And um, I mean, I think the answer to that is no, because um, a cornerstone of CEQA and an often litigated area of CEQA is that you have to have a really good, solid, um, project description that explains what the project is. And so I don't want to talk about Curtis Park because I live there and I actually represented Paul Petrovich for a couple of years, but it all goes back to this really solid project description. And if something isn't in the project description, then that's when trouble occurs and there's arguments about whether additional analysis is required. And I did want to say something really quickly on this traffic issue because I think it's really relevant and pertinent today. Um, the LOS standard or the level of service standard is, is just a 1950 standard and we really need to get rid of it. It's all about you know, what's convenient for the driver. That's, that's really not an environmental impact anymore. What's really important is vehicle miles traveled and what, how that results in greenhouse gas emissions. And we're trying to make that switch. It's complicated, but we're headed in that direction. Absolutely. I do have a question about that uh, coming up, but let's take the next audience questions first. Um, hi, I'm a refugee from the Bay Area, so I have lots of uh, crazy housing stories myself. Um, I actually wanted to follow up on that and um, you mentioned the bike lanes and the level of service thing, and I know now you can't use level of service with transit and bicycle projects anymore, which is fantastic. Um, and I wanted to, to hear thoughts on integrating SB 375 and CEQA, and specifically, how do we account for the environmental impacts of not building and not having density? And is that an environmental impact that should be taken into consideration under the statute? And um, you know, just what's what's in the works in terms of harmonizing? those two um, forces of, of trying to reduce GHGs um, and also enforcing CEQA. So let's, let's backtrack by uh, describing what SB 375 is so we all know what that, it, that's where that stands too. I can Tina. take that since I worked on the bill. Um, <laughs> that was a bill by um, Daryl Steinberg about five or six years ago now. And it obligates um, the metropolitan planning organizations MPOs to prepare what we call sustainable community strategy. It's kind of like a stack of pancakes. It, you take the land use plan and the transportation plan and it has to correlate with achieving certain greenhouse gas standards that are established by CARB. So you no longer do your transportation planning in a silo and then your land use planning, but you have to combine them. And then you have to achieve a certain 
uh, target that is established by CARB. And the four major MPOs all did their sustainable community strategies, you know, in the last five or six years. Um, and I, SACOG, the local one here, did not get sued. MTC in the Bay Area, four lawsuits from the EJ community to the BIA to the Tea Party. So, you know, it was just hard to figure out what we'd done right and what we'd done wrong. But, you know, we, we settled or litigated all of those lawsuits successfully. Um, and we're, the MTC project is, or M, uh, plan, plan Bay Area is about to come out again. But, so that's, that's how SB 375 works. In terms of incorporating that into CEQA, it's really not SB 375 that's gonna incorporate it into CEQA. I think it's more 743 which is another Daryl Steinberg bill that is shifting this analysis from the LOS standard, the level of service standard, to the VMT standard, or the vehicle miles travel standard, and trying to get us to focus on reducing greenhouse gases in the context of CEQA. And I know Curtis knows a lot about this, so he'd be another person to I do have a question brain. about that, because I wanted to bring that up. S Senate Bill 743, because that seemed to come up a lot our now mayor, Daryl Steinberg, got that passed when he was Senate President Pro Tem. And that seemed to focus a lot on the Golden One Arena, getting that built, fast track to build. But I guess it also had other um, impacts on, on the vehicle traffic and so forth. My question for that was, I, I think I read he was quoted in the Los Angeles Times saying, as a legislator, dealing with CEQA was the hardest thing he ever had to do. And it was just a matter of you got to chip, 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 chip away at it. So my question for on that was, what does that say about how the legislature approaches CEQA and approaches making changes to it? Is it, it is a chip, chip, chip away? Um, did he find a new way to approach it? What are you seeing on the legislative level with CEQA? Okay, so this is what I do for a living. Um, neck deep in alligators at the Capitol. So, First, I would kind of uh, adjust that, 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 that this, this conversation that's come up multiple times, uh, and the governor brought it up a number of years ago, that CEQA needs to be reformed. And then he came back later and said, that's God, that's the Lord's work. Um, because getting CEQA reformed, kind of like the you know, repeal and replace approach, is, is just unrealistic. So uh, something I say as I go around and, and talk to different groups about this is that you know, what we're really looking at is adjusting CEQA. Um, and there are certain uh, interests that are trying to chip away at the, uh, at the you know, protection aspects of CEQA and make it easier to do things. And there's other individuals and groups that are trying to make it stronger. And that process is, our, is called democracy. And so we, it's very complicated at the Capitol when we get into these conversations. There's, right now, we're tracking about 12 CEQA bills that are going through. And they're not specifically only on CEQA, but they have some CEQA component to it. And the conversations are very robust in the hallways and with the staff of the legislators and so forth about what can be done and how do we do that. Um, and I won't bore you with all the details on that. But there's a lot of work, a lot of people, a lot of organizations, on all sides of the issue working on that, okay? Now, the challenge is, is that if we, and this is what I propose to you, that as a, as a state, as a, as a community of people living together, if, if we were to reduce the statute, reduce the law, or, or 
or streamline it in such an effect that the consequences of those decisions were irreparable and permanent and we could never go back. What would that mean to us? In, in a community, those could be very significant impacts. And many people have seen those projects come through that got expedited or something happened and they didn't win the EIR lawsuit and things went into place. And other projects are wonderful and the, community, the majority of the community members really love it. So if the intent is to figure out how to get there as a community or as a region, to get to the successful projects and to do what that community feels is the best for them along in partnership with the applicants and the developers, that's the end objective. That's what we're trying to do with adjusting CEQA or looking at what specifically in the CEQA law can be changed given the complexity of our development cycle today. Okay, so that's what we're trying to do. I do want to go back to just briefly what Tina was saying earlier about um, VMTs. This is huge. This is a, a, a very insightful question, by the way. And the acronym again, just so I uh, remember. Vehicle Miles Traveled. Vehicle Miles Traveled. Um, let's look at it this way. Up until now, traffic studies and therefore traffic mitigation was based on level of service. And if at an intersection or on a highway uh, segment, it was A, B, it was like elementary school grades, right? A, B, C, D, F, right? Um, if it was A or B, it's fine. If it's D or F, well, we got a problem, we need to do something with it. The challenge with that is that that fluctuates in any given moment that you're on the highway. It could be an accident that caused that level of service F. It could be the fact that, you know, the school's letting out at the wrong time that day. And so it doesn't really take into account this regional average of what is happening with traffic patterns. And so um, Mayor Steinberg, previously uh, Senator Steinberg, and that VMT, vehicle miles travel approach, was brilliant. It's now looking at how do we plan regionally? How do we think about where we put our schools, our job centers, our housing, our transit? And we need to look at what we're doing as a community when we travel. And traffic in cars is the number one private contributor to GHGs in, in the state. So if we don't reduce the amount of miles that we travel on a daily basis as individual consumers, we're never gonna reach our climate goals, okay? And that's a different conversation, probably for another panel, right? Uh, climate, uh, climate change and, and uh, GHGs. But if we think about what we wanna do or how we wanna grow and how we wanna build our communities, traffic and GHGs and driving to our job centers is one of the number one problems we have. And the farther away from the job centers you go, the higher your vehicle miles traveled per person. Good example, when you live in the city of Sacramento in downtown Midtown, the average VMT is three to five miles per person, per day. You move outside of the Sacramento County or Sacramento City area and you start going up towards the foothills and you get to Folsom or Roseville or places like that, the average can get up to 35 to 40 miles per person, per day. So just think about how many miles that adds up. So the interest on planning now, and I go back to, if we planned better, if we did our general plans better, and we did our general plan updates better, and we stuck to those plans, right, and they were in line with 375 and, you know, the SCSs and the MPOs, blueprints, and all those type of things, and we stuck to those plans, that would be great. The problem is, is that there's lots of local jurisdictions that don't stick to the MPO's plans. They don't do the SCSs in the right way. There's lots of jurisdictions that are trying to do things that you know, are gonna be less expensive and not gonna cost them as much. And ultimately, those impacts and those consequences 
we're stuck with. You can't, you can't undo you know, some of these big development projects, so. Chris. I just, where would you get the data that if you live like in Placer County that you drive further than um, Sacramento? Caltrans. So Caltrans has done VMT analysis that shows that when you're outside, and so has um, SACOG. So when you're outside of job center areas, your average miles traveled per person per household is significantly higher than when you live in job centers. Just makes sense, right? When you live by transit, I lived in the Bay Area. I very rarely ever got in my car. Why? Because you'd spend two hours on the bridge trying to get anywhere. I'd ride BART. So my vehicle miles traveled on a daily basis was zero, right? So when we live around transit and we live in big cities and urban environments that have good public transportation and you're closer to your job center, you have much less vehicle miles traveled. And this is a regional thing. So VMT and 743 is based on what the region is doing. And if we look at it regionally, we're not gonna penalize one little project development in one little spot. We're gonna say that jurisdiction needs to look at their entire region and figure out how to plan well so that we, we put the higher density projects around transit or we build the transit to make sure that the the new residents that are moving into those houses actually have public transportation, and we're not all stuck on Highway 50 and 80 for an hour and a half trying to get into the city, right? So just by default, when Caltrans has done this analysis and when the MPOs have looked at it, we know the farther away from job centers you go, the more you drive. Yeah, I guess it just depends on what you define as job centers, because I've seen some SACOG data where they ask people how long it takes you to get to where you're going, and the uh, residents in Placer County actually have a lower, smaller, uh, whatever way you want to define it, commute time than people in Sacramento County. So I think that there are, you, the assumption is that everyone's coming to downtown. Not everyone's coming to downtown Sacramento to go to work. There are people who work, actually do have jobs in Roseville. I work in Roseville. <laughs> I have a reverse commute. So um, I think it's just, sometimes there's a, a Sacramento-centric sort of focus to it. There's everyone's coming down here to work, and that's not necessarily always the case. I think that there might be a way of squaring your data with the data that SACOG that I've seen, but um, and I think it's just an important point. And I actually want to just raise one other point, too, is just to kind of clarify the intent of CEQA for those of you in the audience. It's, you know, the idea is to make it informative. What is the impact going to be, and, and allowing the decision makers to take that information in and make solid decisions? The law is not intended to act as a political instrument to stop a project. So when a project comes forward, even if it has significant impacts that get analyzed, and if a uh, member of the city council says, I think that's, it's fine. I think that the benefits of it outweigh the traffic. They can issue, uh, something we haven't talked about, a statement of overriding consideration, which means I understand that there's uh, a lot of you know, traffic. I think that the good outweighs the bad, and I'm overriding that, and I'm going to approve this project anyway. So I think that there's, you know, the underbelly of this of this argument is that if there's enough CEQA analysis, that it'll stop projects, and that doesn't really on the projects that I've actually worked on as an advocate, they've overridden, they, they issued a statement of overriding consideration. So it is not intended to stop projects, and in line with that, if a lawsuit happens and they say, you know, you didn't do your air analysis correctly. Because of what I was saying earlier, it's a, it's a legal process. The judge might say, yeah, hey, this document <clears throat> didn't do it right. So go back and fix that. So the, the applicant will go back, and they'll go back and hire a, a consultant. They'll study it, and then they'll come back to the, to the jurisdiction and say, okay, we fixed that. Now approve it. Because the, the CEQA process is not a political approval process. It is only an informative process. So suing on the CEQA document and getting more litigation, even if you win, does not stop the project. 
it merely calls for a higher level of analysis. So, All right, we have nine minutes for questions. So I have a couple, but let's get, no, let's, I'm, I'm only gonna hold them until no one is at the mic. So let's have someone else get to the mic and next question. Okay, good. Yeah, good evening. Uh, my name is Curtis and uh, I'm one of the consultants that, that uh, uh, works with mostly cities and counties and public agencies, also some developers. You know, perhaps trying to create the successes of the use of CEQA where it actually serves the project and serves the, uh, the community decision making. Uh, so by uh, full confession, I did buy my, my slice of pizza and my well drink using money that I earned working in CEQA business. So. Uh, but I do believe in the, the uh, underlying uh, policy intent of CEQA. And the way I would describe it is that it's, uh, it's, both, it's about in, informed government decision-making, absolutely. There's also a provision that, that uh, requires public agencies to, to uh, seek to reduce significant environmental effects to the extent that it's feasible to do so through mi mitigation measures. And so there is really an environmentally protective element in the law. And I think the third piece, and this is the difficult part, there's an opportunity for... Uh, citizenry to hold their government accountable for making informed decisions, and this is where the lawsuit issues come up. But um, I would say for for groundbreakers that uh, if you're interested in the housing problems, to also look at the economic influences, not just the regulatory ones, like Proposition 13 and the influence on property tax, uh, like the unprecedented fountain of wealth that comes out of the Silicon valley, uh, you know, creating demand and, and spilling out into into the rest of Northern California, things like that. Yeah, uh, we covered that in part one. Oh, good, good. Yes. I didn't, didn't get a chance to listen well, to that. Glanced it, but yeah, yeah, it's a big thing. Yeah, uh, yeah and, and uh, availability of infrastructure, things like that uh, appear to have as at least as great, probably greater influence on the problem, and it is a, indeed a, a big problem. So, but now my question and, and my, my thought about solution. It gets to the to planning, is the, is the uh, better coordination of good community planning integrated with the environmental process uh, using tools that are already in the law that allow for a pretty rapid streamlining of project approvals if you're doing a good job of coordinating a general plan in its environmental review, its CEQA document, or there's other kinds of plans, community plans, specific plan. Each of these has, has streamlining provisions, even exemption provisions for later projects. Uh, if the uh, environmental review of that broader plan is done well and identifies the impacts, identifies the mitigation measures, and so on. City of Sacramento is a great example of this, where they have a what's called a mastery IR, one of these special streamlining tools that they've linked with their general plan, and they have a process where uh, projects that are consistent with the general plan can can go through more more quickly, more smoothly, less costly. Uh, other jurisdictions have similar uh, setups. So I guess my question to the panel is, is how do you view this? Is this a, this a way to get to a solution where it can ease the path for good housing uh, done and consistent with, with uh, community plans where the environmental work's really already been done at the plan level? Thanks. Absolutely. Um, so I think we've looked at and have had this addressed by a number of the coalition group members about how often is that streamlining currently used? Um, and I, I think some others here on the panel could probably speak to that uh, specifically. Uh, certain jurisdictions do a very good job of that, and so there are more applicants that can take advantage of that, um, the, of those, except those exemptions in that streamlining. Um, other jurisdictions don't do a good job, and so they end up having to go through individual EIR applications. So we do think that there are more ways and, and additional ways that we can um, create those opportunities for good actors to get 
the right projects built. Um, but I do think, and we feel very strongly, it goes back to the planning process, to the general planning process, to the community plans. That integration among that jurisdiction is really key. And the challenge is, is it costs a lot of money, and a lot of jurisdictions have not updated their general plans for years, and they're supposed to do it more often than they don't. And uh, so somehow we have to figure out how to potentially help local jurisdictions. LA, San Diego, San Francisco, the big jurisdictions, they have lots of money. They do this all the time. You know, Sacramento, for example, does this. But l smaller jurisdictions outside of those big cities, they don't have the money, they don't spend the time or the energy to do it. And so they're behind the eight ball when it comes to using, utilizing some of those CEQA uh, exemptions and streamlinings that are already in place. So just give a brief ex definition or example of, of the general plan and I guess a good example of how it would work, I, uh, just so we can visualize it for Tom. It, Curtis is right. Uh, we, we have a master EIR and, and when we've, uh, we develop a general plan, which is the big plan for the community over a long period of time, in this case I think we're up to 2035, and uh, we examine each of the technical areas, air quality, water quality, uh, transportation. We look at the cumulative impact of the development and the activities that could occur under the general plan. And when an individual project comes in, our task is to look at that project and say, does that project present any significant effects that were not analyzed in the master EIR? Uh, and so uh, that's been one of our key tools over the last uh, 10 years. Uh, we're still working at it. We're still trying to improve the process. But that's definitely uh, uh, absolutely a way to get through the process in a simplified manner. Another aspect of that, though, is individual projects that, as Tina alluded to at the beginning, are found to be exempt from CEQA. So if you're exempt from CEQA, you don't do any CEQA analysis at all. And um, the city of Sacramento, uh, in, in there been, uh, uh, we've talked about politics, the elected officials. The elected officials ele uh, appoint or hire a city manager. City manager hires a department director. Department director hires the planning director. Planning director is oversees the, the environmental staff. There's a, an attitude and a philosophy in that process. Uh, what is our attitude toward uh, development? What's our attitude toward schedules? What's our attitude toward applicants in the environmental community? And we live in Sacramento. I work in Sacramento. And that process, uh, at least in my view, works pretty well. But we have projects that come through that are actually fairly large projects, at least fairly large, uh, 40 housing units, uh, 50 apartments, maybe 200 apartments on a, on a city lot and that we determine to be exempt from CEQA review. So they undertake no CEQA review whatsoever. They look like a fairly large project, but when we look at it, we say, does that project have any significant effects? What, what significant effects would it have? It's in the city. It, it's served by all public services, fire department and police. It's on a piece of land. We could have potentially some uh, impacts in terms of uh, excavation, but we have standard conditions that take care of that. And um, transportation, we have a, a street grid that takes care of it, and it's been analyzed in the Mastery IR. So I think that we've done a pretty good job in terms of moving projects along, especially residential projects. 
that uh, could have been put to the test in another jurisdiction to go through a lot of study, a lot of documentation, a lot of consultant costs and the like. So I, I think we do pretty well. The only other point I'd, I'd make is that there is, and, and we have some of the people around here that, that would, would prove this, I think that there is kind of a CEQA infrastructure. Um, uh, the uh, legislators, uh, judges, attorneys, consultants, staff. I have a job because of CEQA. Curtis has a job because of CEQA. Tina has a, well, whatever, I guess, a, a career or whatever we, we call that. <laughs> she's, a, she's a CEQA person. I mean, there's a lot of people that are in this trade because of CEQA. And I think one of the things that happens when these things start coming down in the legislation is that there are a lot of interested people in this, and not just because they, they, they want a better world. A lot of people are working at this and want to keep their job. And uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't want to be too cynical about that. But I think that uh, we used to have a fellow that showed up at one of our hearings, and he would object he, he, to the traffic analysis. Uh, he was an attorney. And the traffic analysis, traffic, traffic, traffic. And he, turns out, I think he was employed by a labor union. And that labor union paid him to hire consultants to object to projects. And he, he was uh, in, in hearings and, and in the process. He made his living off of CEQA, and one day, apparently, the labor union stopped paying him because he hasn't shown up in years. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's a reality that we all face as we move through this. That we're, when we're talking to somebody, sometimes I think there's some folks out here doing stuff just because they're getting paid. Tita, do you want to respond? I, I just, I just want to add on. I don't have a problem not, not with having a job, by the way. <laughs> no, I just wanted to kind of go back to what Howard said earlier that, you know, CEQA doesn't really need a major overhaul. I, I just disagree. It needs a complete overhaul. It's too easy to litigate. Um, streamlining is great, but even if you streamline, even if you're consistent with an SES, you can still end up in litigation, and many do. McKinley's one of them, Greenbrier's another. There are so many examples in the um, um, Bay Area where projects are consistent with these greenhouse gas plans and they still are subject to litigation because neighbors don't want density close to them. That's just the, the simple reality. And it's just too easy to bring a lawsuit. There are so many lawyers who will use, um, who will represent plaintiffs on a pro bono basis because they can collect fees at the tail end under what we call the 1021.5 statute. So it's just a reality that these are easy lawsuits to bring, that they are brought and that they stop really good projects like in East Sacramento, um, a memory care facility for 35 people killed because of CEQA. That's criminal. So I think it needs a complete overhaul, and I just wanted to conclude with that. Well, I wanted to ask that. I know we're wrapping it up, but I, I had two questions, and we'll, try to, we'll make them very quick. Um, because one of the questions was based on earlier there was the, the, the dual studies, uh, one from Holland and Knight about uh, law, the lawsuits that were just all over the place, and then another one by BAE, Urban that said no, they're rare. The the Holland and Knight had these recommendations about um, what could be done to streamline or at least reduce lawsuits. You know, eliminating anonymous lawsuits, 
eliminating duplicate lawsuits for which an EIR has been certified. And number three, don't halt projects without proof they'll cause irreparable harm, that's in quotes, to the environment. So I guess there's their suggestions. On the flip side, you know, the public should have their say. Where's the balancing point where um, the public gets to have their say, but then you're just not bogged down in court for years and years. Uh, we can just go down the panel, but Tom. I, I'm not, uh, I, I don't litigate in, in these, when once we've approved a project, it's out the door, we don't follow it very closely. I would say though that when I started practicing law, I was in labor relations and we had arbitration. Somebody got fired, we appointed an arbitrator within 30 days of the filing of the grievance. Uh, we held a hearing within 30 days of the terminate or that, that appointment, and within 30 days we had a decision. Sometimes the person came back to work, sometimes they didn't. And I, I've always uh, found it curious that uh, we send the sequa stuff into the court system where it can languish for years, and uh, I, I think one of the do, I, I ignore all the streamlining and say simply have a, a group of professional arbitrators that actually knew CEQA and get this stuff done. And if somebody was unhappy with the arbitration decision, then they can go sue, but they're subject to paying uh, attorney's fees and costs in the process. And, and I think it is a, tra a tragedy with, with projects that they do get put to this kind of test. And I don't, for what I see in the court system is something that comes out that could come out of professional arbitration just as well. I'd prefer to see that. Tina. Yeah, there have been proposals to shift the costs if you go into court after a mediation or arbitration. And there's also been proposals to establish CEQA courts so that things move really quickly. They've all failed. Um, I don't know what the sweet spot is. You know, I'm, I, like I said, I've been at this 38 years. I've tried a number of times on CEQA reform, and I feel like I'm beating my head against the wall. So, you know, we'll keep, I'll never stop working on it because it's important, but we haven't found that sweet spot yet, and I really hope we, we do at some point because really good projects die as a result of CEQA, and that's just not right. And with you three, I do want to, I want to tie into that one. You had mentioned there's a, a, a dozen or so CEQA related or, or specific bills that are going through the legislature right now. Are there any that you think us as homeowners, renters should be keeping an eye on or that you have hope for or just like they're the, the devil? Just any anyone that we should keep an eye on. So Tina, I don't, you know, if there's any that you're keeping an eye on or you think that we should keep an eye on or maybe I not. I mean, there's 12 bills, but there's nothing that's going to cure the problems we've been talking about tonight. They're little sort of little nips. nips. Okay. Yeah, I think, I think our industry would agree with that, that, you know, yeah, there are, there's a discussion about vehicle miles traveled, and that's a major potential change, but I think that in terms of actually streamlining or providing some real uh, ways of addressing some of these fundamental issues of it blocking some good projects or, the, you know, the multitude of projects and, and sometimes having projects analyzed, you know, Analyze it, you know, SACOG has to do an analysis, and then the city, the county has to do a general plan analysis, and then the project applicant has to do the same analysis, and then there is RT has to do their analysis, all in the same general vicinity 
all triggering in their own SQL analysis. There's nothing that's fundamentally addressing some of that. There's some of this, you know, like you said, like infill can be addressed. Uh, there's exemptions that have been put in place in the last few years that if you're an infill site, that kind of just depends on which jurisdiction you're at. I just got a phone call from somebody um, in Davis saying, we're trying to do with like 40 units right close to transit. And guess what? All the neighbors are fighting us saying that they're pushing the city to do a SQL analysis and it's going to bankrupt my project. When you shouldn't be having to do a SQL analysis on something like that. That's exactly the kind of thing that you should be doing to kind of uh, dial back in your GHG output. So it just depends on where you're at and, and how that jurisdiction wants to interpret their sort of uh, legal liability and their political liability in terms of approaching that. Last word, Howard. All right. I, I, I would say that um, on the whole, most of the SQL bills are, are small tweaks or small adjustments. I think the one that if people are really interested in this, and, and bless your heart if you are, um, SB 35 is a bill that a lot of us are working on right now that does have some significant um, adjustments in it, and uh, you know, I I, I want to concur with Tina here that that if we can all work together to find the sweet spot um, and come together to acknowledge the problem that we have and how we all want to get there as a community, I think we can do that. Um, and and SB 35 is just one of of many approaches to try to find that sweet spot. Um, I've never been a proponent of throwing things out and redoing it to try to find that sweet spot. I think we have. You know, a large portion of CEQA is really good and portions of it we need to figure out. And those are the things that we need to do. I kind of equate it to the Affordable Care Act, you know. So if, think about it that way. Um, how would we entirely reform our health care system that's going to work in a reasonable amount of time? That's a big task. Well, this process is a huge task for us to reform overnight. And so I think Bring, coming together on, on multiple perspectives, you know, to have people like this from multiple perspectives start to talk about this. The coalition I'm a member of has about 25 or 30 across multiple disciplines and industries, all trying to help the legislators find that sweet spot. And it's really, really helpful in closing. It's really helpful to have community members involved in that process at the local level, the regional level, and the state level. So for anyone that are interested in that stuff, go to our website, pcl.org. There's a little pitch. And I'll post information about the organizations and SB 35 on Facebook and our website. So, so there is still some hope. There is hope. Okay, good. Thank you very much, panelists. Thank you, audience. Uh, it's been a great discussion. I've certainly learned a lot. And I know we'll probably have more panels about this down the road. So thanks again. Have a good night. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's conversation about CEQA was held on March 26, 2017 at Graciano Speakeasy in Old Sacramento. Thank you to Ken and Maria Harris, the owners of Graciano's, for hosting this lively discussion. Thanks also to our group of groundbreaking panelists. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.